thanks for joining us at Mountainside Anywhere. I'm Pastor Lyle, and we've been praying for you, praying that God will use this teaching to reveal himself to you in his word. Through it, may you see him more clearly, know him more fully, and trust him more deeply. As always, we're here to serve, so please reach out through mountainside.online if there's a specific way that we can come alongside to pray, help, or encourage you throughout the week. Join me now as we continue this study in the book of Mark. Amen. Well, we, we welcome him here among us to, uh, to be lifted up, to be glorified. He's the only one here who's worthy, and uh, I'm so thankful that you've joined us uh, today to be part of uh, our worship time together, our time now as we get into the Word. Uh, maybe you're here for uh, the first time or the first time in a long time, and we just want to say welcome. Um, Pastor Lyle, one of the pastors that's here, maybe we've never met. I'd love to meet you after the service if uh, you're just uh, coming through for the first time. Um, and uh, just excited to be able to do probably the most important thing I think that you'll probably do today, open the Word of God and ask the Lord to impact your life through it. And uh, so let me, let me just start by kind of, a, you know, just, just having a conversation that will lead us into uh, where we are in Mark today. So let's just say, for instance, you came up with like this brilliant idea, so brilliant that you decided to go before Shark Tank in order to pitch your idea. They are so impressed with your idea they all want to be a part of it. And so now they're all a part of taking your idea to the world. It has to have global impact. Okay, you guys are already starting to, your minds are stirring as to where we're heading in the book of Mark today. As the Shark Tank, some of the smartest entrepreneurs, you know, maybe that's uh, to be, I, I don't know, you may disagree with that. Whatever it is, they, they've certainly made a lot of money doing, you know, what they do. And so now they are trying to assemble a team in order to take this brilliant idea of yours to the entire world to have a global impact. What kind of team ends up on the shark team's t uh, tank's team in order to take your idea to the world? Who, who ends up making the cut? Who's on this team that they would put? I mean, money's not an issue. They're, they're, you know, they can get the best and the brightest. And, you know, like you're thinking, okay, well, some of the things is like global distribution and, and how are they going to market and brand? And there's all this, there's all these pieces, right? Like the, the minds from social media today and global, uh, uh, Google and wh whoever they are, the brightest, right? to figure out how to, how to uh, assemble the right team, find the right leadership in order to get this idea out. Now, those, this type of conversation for that group, if it was really like how to get a product out to make more money, they would be, uh, you can be sure, assembling whoever they believe are the absolute best of the best in order to make the most money in the long run, because that's what that would be all about, right? Today, we're definitely talking about a, a team and the choosing of a team and uh, about the training of that team. And as soon as I start talking about picking teams, does anybody's mind go to gym class? <laughs> Some of you now are having like, 
you know, flashbacks, a little PTSD to being the last person picked over and over, or, or maybe, maybe you weren't, you're always the one who got to choose. Like, we're all somehow, we all fall in that, that, that lineup somewhere. Uh, just a couple weeks ago, well, maybe it's been a couple months ago now, uh, it's down uh, at the Bible Institute and playing pickup ball on a Monday night, and there, back then, I don't know if they do it every week, but in the, in the time that I was there, they like line everybody up. It feels like gym class. There's a few, you know, younger staff members who are the cool people who are picking from all of us standing in a line. So uh, that particular day, it was amazing because me and some of the other old guys ended up on the same group. But uh, funny enough, I think we only lost one game that entire evening. So it's certainly not in the order that you're picked uh, or who's picking you or whatever the case may be in the, in the old gym class dodgeball situation. Um, but we all get that picture of what it's like when the team is picked. So my question to you today would be, if you were trying to build a team in order to take that great idea out and impact the whole world, who would you pick? Who would you pick? How would you figure it out? Who would be your number one pick, your number two pick? You know, the NBA now does this, this same thing for the All-Star game where, you know, whoever the top two vote-getters are, you know, it's LeBron and uh, KD this year. You know, I think it was those guys this year. I can't remember. And they pick, and, you know, it's funny, the last pick this year in the NBA All-Star game uh, that LeBron picked was uh, Nikolai, Nikolai Jokic. So the guy who ends up actually getting picked last on LeBron's team is the guy in the playoffs that sweeps LeBron's team and actually is the MVP of the league. Just a fun little fact there. But... Who would you pick? Who would you pick to be on this team that ultimately has to affect the world? Today is about Jesus' team, the team he picks. We're going to be in Mark chapter 3. This team that he picks is the team that are called to go out to give an eyewitness report about Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection in a totally hostile environment while at the very same time being completely loving. That's the team that Jesus is choosing. The team that he reveals to us in this section of scripture. According to Ephesians chapter 2 verse 20, Jesus, the most important piece in the building, the foundation of the church, he's called the cornerstone. But in that passage in Ephesians 2.20, he says that the apostles and prophets are the foundation of the church. These men that are on his team are important pieces to why we're even here today. Some might call them the God Squad. Or maybe you've not heard this one, Deities Dozen. <laughs> are they the greatest team ever assembled? You know, in our culture, billions of dollars are spent on a fictional superhero team that assembles to save the world. Not a real team, just a fictional story that people love to get in the middle of the story of how the world is saved. And people have spent billions of dollars, countless hours, time that none of us will ever get back watching these fictional superheroes. But the team that Jesus puts together is actually a real part of getting a message 
of salvation to a world that needs to be rescued. They're nothing like the superhero team. In fact, just the opposite. There's not really anything extraordinary about any of them. They're just ordinary men, ordinary people. In Mark chapter 3, starting in verse 13, it says, Afterward, Jesus went up on a mountain, and he called out the ones that he wanted to go with him. And they came to him. I want to pause there, and we're going to jump down to verse 16, to the actual list that he gives. And then we'll go back, and we'll look in the middle section there at the purpose of the team. But first, I want to jump to 16, where we see the people that are on his team. That's number one today, the people that are on his team. In verse 16, it says, these are the 12 that he chose. These are the 12 that he chose. Now, on the screen, you're going to see uh, a little bit of a graph here that's going to give you, and hopefully it's big enough on there that you guys can, can see that. But there's, there's four different lists in Scripture. There's the Matthew account, Mark, Luke, and Acts account. And you'll notice that I've got it separated into sections purposefully. You'll see in each of these lists uh, some, some commonality. All the people are the same, even though maybe you look, and if it's the first time that you're looking at this, there might be some like, wait a second, there's, there's some names on each of the lists that are in a section that are a little bit out of order from each other, or in one section, maybe I, I see a different name that isn't in that name. Why is Matthias in Acts, when Judas Iscariot, we know, is one of the 12. Well, by the time Acts is written, Judas has taken his life, and they choose a 12th disciple, the 12th uh, apostle, which is Matthias. These are the people that are on his team. In each of the lists, each of the accounts in the gospel, you'll notice that Peter is always first, Judas is always last. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 2, it says, Now the names of the twelve apostles are these. The first, Simon, who is called Peter, Andrew's brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, and it goes on. In the Matthew account, it talks about the first. Now, you, you would typically, you'd read that, and you just think it's talking about Peter alone being the first. First in what? Like, what is, we know Peter is the, definitely the most boisterous, loudmouth. He, he, he is uh, the leader of the pack. But is it only because of what's said here in Matthew that, that he's first? The word that's translated first is the uh, specific idea of ranking, that he is first in rank, but these guys are in rank in the list that you see. Now, do you notice that in each of these, you'll notice that Peter's at the top and all of it. We've already said Judas is at the bottom. But then if you notice, there's actual groupings that we see in all four accounts. There's groupings in all four. The same names, even though there may be a little bit of difference in uh, uh, the groups within those names as you go through the accounts, but you'll notice that the first person in each of the groups is always the same. Peter in group one, Philip in group two, and James in group three. All the same. God gave us this order and it's not necessarily an order of the selection that they were picked because Andrew actually is the one who brings Peter to Jesus. So Andrew would have been number one in this list if it was according to that. But we know that it's according to rank, the way that Jesus put them together. 
and also group them. For any group to be effective, there would have to be a leader of the group. Peter is number one in rank over all of them, but we notice now that, that Philip and James would be uh, a leader of the group that they are in, that they are over that group, in, essentially. And Judas, again, remind you, if you didn't forget, he's always last. Each of these groups seems to have its own identity, its own order, its own leadership. We have a group one, two, and three, and even Jesus in the account as he reads, we can see, kind of like gym class, he calls them in this order. The first group, he picks them first. Second, he says their names next, and the third group is the last group. Isn't that just reality in our lives? Um, it's interesting how culture has shifted and from the time I was little till now, where now is the time where everybody gets the trophy. Um, we seem to be almost shifting back out of that again, but we definitely went through a period of time where you know, it was expected when I was in Rotterdam being a Little League coach, Austin was in Little League at the time, everyone gets a participation trophy. Okay? Even the, the, the child who came one week and chased butterflies the entire time <laughs> got the same trophy as, uh, as the kid who worked harder and was there every week and so on and so forth. Three groups picked in the order that is written down here in Mark. All of these men, though, are equal in their divine commission and the authority and the power that we'll see in the next verses as we go through them. One day, according to Scripture, they will all sit on equal thrones as they judge the 12 tribes of Israel as described in Revelation as their names are written on the foundation stones in the new Jerusalem. They are all going to lead. But interesting about these groups, we know the most about the first group, less about the middle, and almost nothing about the third. The very first group is the closest, the most intimate with Christ. In Scripture, we see the most written about them and their interactions and their time together. But yet we know that Jesus loved all of the disciples equally. He empowered them equally. He promised them equal glory. But in the, it is certainly impossible for any leader to be equally close to everyone that they work with. Have you noticed that to be true in your own life? It's just the way that it is. So who is this team that Jesus picks that we see? The Mark account there gives you the order. And I want to just go through briefly and highlight a few things that we know to be true about all of them. And certainly not going to take the time to say, let's go look at every passage of Scripture and the other accounts that kind of give us the, a full picture of, of who they are. We're going to see quite a bit in the book of Mark as we continue on in the disciples' relationship, especially with Jesus. But the first one in the list is, is Simon Peter. He was a fisherman, right? Jesus changed his name to Peter. And we see that through this whole list. Very interesting that there's a lot of nicknames given. A lot of, not just their called name, uh, their given name, but nicknames. And Peter was given the name by Jesus, uh, Peter, when his name was Simon. Um, it means rock. Many of you know that to be true. Um, and what's revealed in scripture is that Peter, the rock, spends more time than anybody else with Christ. He's closest to Jesus. He's their spokesperson. He's their leader. Jesus says, upon this rock, Peter, upon this rock, I'm going to build my church. 
Do you think it was a name that was a constant reminder, maybe, of who he was called to be? In the book of Acts, from chapter 1 all the way through chapter 12, he's the, the uh, predominant preacher. And his name, if you didn't know this interesting detail, his name is mentioned more times in the New Testament than any other specific name, Peter. And kind of funny, for all of us who used to have our, uh, our names used when we were specifically in trouble, Simon would be brought out uh, when he would be struggling uh, and need to be reprimanded. Kind of like uh, I always think of uh, uh, Phil Armstrong would be like, Luke Cephas, Luke Cephas. And poor Lukey would always know when he was in trouble because he would get Luke Cephas. And it would be the kind that when it would be a reprimand out in the middle of the lake on the boat, I could hear him on shore saying Luke Cephas in a perfect Armstrong way. But I go by my middle name, Lyle. My, my grandfather and my dad were both Charles. And so I'm the third Charles, even though we don't have exact names. We all had different middle names. Uh, but Charles would always be brought out when I was in, tr- in trouble too. So... I understand what that's like for for Simon Peter when uh, he was called out with his old name. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Jesus nicknames them the sons of thunder. They're also fishermen. Uh, The Zebedee part is kind of unknown. There there are definitely some references in Scripture that would give you insight to think maybe their dad was of prominent, um, uh, had some prominence, maybe some specific, you know, financially doing well. Um, connected maybe to a high priest as we look through some passages of scripture, but we don't really know. Um, but every time, uh, nearly every time that their names are mentioned, they are the sons of Zebedee. But he calls them the sons of thunder. They are certainly passionate, quick to anger in some situations, huge reactions at times. Like in Luke 9, when the people don't receive Jesus into their town, what do they say? Uh, Can we just call down fire, Jesus, and burn them all to a crisp? (laughs) So, you know, these guys have a a little bit of temper there. Um, So maybe their nickname, like Peter's nickname, was given to remind him, I, I think, of who God was calling him to be. Maybe this is a reminder of who they used to be and were called to change from that. It's not who you are anymore, boys. James is always mentioned with his brother, and it's also mentioned in Luke chapter 5, verse 10, that they are partners in this fishing expedition with Peter and Andrew. So Peter, Andrew, James, and John are all fishing partners, and Jesus calls them out of that. They drop their nets, and they follow him. Uh, Andrew, who's Peter's brother, is, uh, of course, also a fisherman, but his name means manly. He's the one who brings Peter, what, what a position to be in, to bring Peter to Jesus, and then Peter becomes number one. You're always the number two. Um, Pastor Dave and I were just talking about this this week. Um, I think God calls some people perfectly into that position to help, to support, to be in that, and that is a, a humble place to be in, and God, I think, called Andrew specifically into that. He's always just outside that top three group. Peter, James, and John are the closest, most intimate. And then Andrew's like right on the edge, but not invited into some of the most trusted moments uh, with Jesus and the other three. That'd be a hard place to be sometimes, right? But then there's Philip. He's from Bethsaida. Uh, He's probably knew the four guys that we just mentioned. He might even have possibly known the rest. Um, He was a Hellenized Jew. 
Um, so they probably were connected to each other, most likely a fisherman in that area. We don't know a ton more about him. Bartholomew. His name is, uh, Bartholomew is not really his name. Bartholomew means Bar, which is son of. Tolmai is, is a specific name, so he's son of Tolmai. Uh, and, and for whatever reason, instead of saying, you know, sons of Zebedee, this is Bartholomew. He's the son of Tolmai. Son of Tolmai. His actual name was Nathaniel. Got a few Nathaniels around here. So his name was Nathaniel uh, Bartholomew, the son of Tolmai. Nathaniel means God has given, and that was really his name that God had given him. Matthew, we met when we went through Mark chapter 2, the tax collector. He would have been hated by everybody, despised by everybody. This group of men would not have been impressed. We showed the quick clip of the chosen in, in that time when how they depict that scene of Jesus calling Matthew and he comes out of the booth and all the guys are like, what is going on here? Um, which is probably a really great representation of however that moment happened because they would have really struggled with Matthew uh, being around them at all. Thomas. He is called in John eleven sixteen the twin, Didymus. Um, but what do we know Thomas most best for? What are the most messages preached about Thomas? He's doubting Thomas. He's doubting. But amazing, he's, he's the doubter, the pessimist uh, who Jesus restores a week after the resurrection when he comes and he does put his hands in Jesus' hands and his side. And, and there's this restoration moment that happens that's amazing between Thomas and Jesus. James, the son of Alphaeus. We hardly know anything about him. Um, in Mark 15, 40, he has a mother named Mary who follows Christ. Uh, in that same passage, he's called James the Less. Now, the Less is a word in Greek that we get our word micro from. So he's James the Less, but it, it's possible that it means that he was smaller in stature, not completely clear. The other James is sometimes referred to as the elder, and he's the less. So is the first James big, and he's small, or one's older, and he's younger? Not quite sure, but it's one of the details that we know about James the Less, or James, son of Alphaeus. Thaddeus, his real name, did you know this? Uh, his real name is Judas, which is why in this list over here, uh, there's Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot. Thaddeus' real name was also Judas, but thankfully the Lord gave him a nickname and called him. This group had a nickname for him, so he also didn't have to be known for the rest of his life as Judas. We never refer to him as Judas, the son of James. His name, nickname used was Thaddeus. He also is referred to in Scripture as Lebius. They're both similar uh, a, a, a very close to mom's heart person. Um, some commentators say that the whole point of using that word was what we would refer to as a mama's boy. I don't know. It could also mean that possibly that he just was the, the younger of the people in his family. It's not completely clear, but the slang of it definitely leads to it that he really like. He was, he was a mama's boy. He loved being home. He lo like, that just was a part of, like, he had a big heart, like that kind of a person. Simon the Zealot. So right after the big heart mama's boy in the list is Simon the Zealot. 
Zealots at the time were like a militia group, politically motivated revolutionaries that would murder, burn down, plunder, destroy anything to inflict pain or difficulty on the Romans. Uh, read and from one commentator, it would have been like if, if, if this man was truly a zealot, as he's described, if he was in a, in, a, in a situation where he found a Roman soldier like not paying attention, he would have murdered that soldier. That's, that's how serious the zealots were. How serious the Romans were to defeat the zealots. They, they destroy Jerusalem in AD 70. And it, over that time, uh, they continue to destroy 985 towns in Galilee, slaughtering the people in order to bring an end to the zealot rebellion. While they elect, the zealots elect another leader, leader at the time, so they can continue to try to go and rise up against Rome from the hideout that they had uh, in uh, Masada. That's who Simon the Zealot is in this group. And then Judas Iscariot, who later betrayed him. We don't know much about Judas except his betrayal. Was Judas the saddest human maybe to ever live? It's probably the greatest story ever of wasted opportunity. To spend 24-7, three years solid with Jesus and then betray him. This is the team, folks. Sounds like a, a band of amazing superheroes that are going to turn the world upside down. But these are the people on Jesus' team. If we go back to verse 13, it said, Afterward, Jesus went up to a mountain and called out the ones he wanted to go with him. And they came to him. Now, I think it's important to just pause for a second in the detail of Mark's account does not reveal a detail that's in Luke's account that I think is vitally important. I don't know, like Luke, uh, Mark is definitely the fast paced, just gives you like kind of the, the quick movement forward. After this, Jesus chose the 12, there it is, there's their names, and, and kind of moves on. But Luke gives a detail in Luke chapter 6, verse, teen, uh, verse 13, you'll see it on the screen. It says, at daybreak, he called together all of all his disciples, and he chose 12 of them to be apostles. You say, that sounds exactly like Mark. But the verse just before it, verse 12, says this. One day, soon afterward, Jesus went up on a mountain to pray, and he prayed to God all night. He prayed all night night long and then at daybreak so from sundown to sun up is what the greek says that entire time frame he is in prayer and at the moment of daybreak he calls the disciples together and he chooses his team the first point today was we saw and got to meet the people on the team and number two is he prayed for his team he prayed for his team. Say, Lyle, I'm not seeing specifically in there that it says that that's exactly what he prayed for. He prayed all night long. Prayed all night long. Many times through scripture, we see that when there is a significant physical, emotional, or spiritual situation, Jesus gets away and prays. The immediate thing that happens when he stops his prayer is that he chooses his disciples. 
Now, it doesn't tell me that he's specific, what he's specifically praying about, but here's what I do know. This is the very beginning of the ministry of his training time with his disciples. It says that he spent all night in prayer. And do you know what he did on the night before that training time was over and he goes to the cross? John 17, he prays for his disciples. We know every word of that prayer. He prayed for them at the beginning, I believe, and at the end. And in the middle, he spends countless hours of time pouring into these guys is the thing that we're going to see next. Here's my question. How does your prayer life change when big events or choices are ahead of you? I don't know exactly what he prayed for. I imagine and believe it to be that he was praying for, for the men as part of it. I mean, for all those hours of prayer, there had to be a lot in there that he's communicating with the Father about. What a significant decision. I mean, was part of the, the, the struggle through prayer to pray an entire night about the selection. These men, when he chooses them, are going to give their lives. Who he chooses will die for him. Horrible deaths. What a weight. I've known men who have been in significant business decisions who have had to make decisions to cut hundreds of thousands of dollars out of budgets and let people go, which changes their lives. They've moved. They've, they've had to, to sell everything. It, they, this, those stories are so hard and so difficult. Think like that is just a, a, a minuscule, terrible illustration in comparison to what Jesus is having to decide thinking of these men, knowing these men, knowing their families. Knowing that when the next day he says, Peter, there's a wife that Peter has that comes with him through ministry. Did you know that? For those of us who um, have said a long time ago, or maybe yesterday, God, I'll go and do whatever you want to do, whatever it is. Um, in your business, in your ministry of, of working for what life or camping, whatever, whatever it is that, that the Lord's called you to do, there is sacrifice there on some level. And I think Jesus understands is greater than you ever might think that he does. There is a weight to being on Jesus' team that's significant. He prayed for the team. And then in verse 14, it says, then he appointed 12 of them. Back in Mark chapter 3, verse 14, he appointed 12 of them, and he called them his apostles. They were to accompany him. They would, he would send them out to preach, giving them authority to cast out demons. We've seen the people on his team. He prayed for his team. And now, what is the purpose and plan of his team? He appoints 12 of them. He calls them apostles. Um, the apostles are sent out ones. The, the word would have been connected to an Aramaic understanding that it's not just people who are sent out like sent out representatives, but they would be in official capacity, holding the weight of the authority of the one who sends them. So as they are going out as apostles, they're going out 
as official representation of Jesus, of the Son of God. He's going to send them out in a little bit, but there's a process that they have to go through before they actually get into the game. He's got a team. What's the purpose and plan uh, for this team? It says that they were to accompany him. What happens the next three years, they live with him. 24-7. This is not a, hey, this is a great band of brothers that's going to go out on a camping trip with Jesus. This is a group of guys who are going to go out and they're going to do everything they can to survive as they learn at the feet of Jesus. They live with, they spend time with, they're immersed in Jesus for three years. They sit with him and then he eventually will send them out. They spend time with Jesus, and then they're sent by Jesus. What are they sent by Jesus to do? To preach. What are they going to preach? They're going to preach the good news of Jesus. That's what Mark chapter 1 started with, the gospel. The gospel of Jesus, the good news of who he is, his death, burial, and resurrection. In uh, Acts 1.8, you're going to take this message, and you're going to go into all the world, and you're going to preach the gospel everywhere, Jerusalem, Judea, and it's going to end up in the uttermost, all over the place, here, there, and everywhere you guys are going to preach. But before you preach, there's got to be some training. You're going to spend time with me and be immersed in my teaching so that when I give you the Great Commission and tell you now go make disciples, you've now been discipled by me so that you can now go represent me with authority and lead people to me, to follow me, to be taught by me, changed by me, and then to go replicate themselves to also be like me. I, the strategy is pretty brilliant. Jesus, the Son of God, who the verse right before the Great Commission said, I've been given all authority in heaven and on earth. And then in the next part of this verse right here, he says he gives them authority. And another passage in one of the other uh, uh, groups uh, uh, that you saw when he, when he calls the 12, he specifically says that he, they are given power not just over demons, but over disease, disease and demons. They go out and they heal like they just saw Jesus doing, they go out and he gives them that power to heal disease and to cast out demons. Uh, one, uh, I think it was a MacArthur's book called Ordinary Men that I, I read this week there. He, he made the comment like, okay, so if you, if you were out and there were three different preachers and, and those three preachers were there and they were all saying something, would you believe the one who is in the authority of the Son of God because they can heal people and cast out demons and the others can't. Yes. So there's a validation to the message that they're going to preach with the authority, the power to heal disease and cast out demons. They're going to represent him officially in the capacity of apostle sent out ones. So he says, you 12, you're going to be the ones you're it. Plan A. No plan B. Plan A. You are the A team. I'm going to train you to be my preachers, and down the road, I'm going to send you. Finally, when I'm gone, you're going to go into the whole world. So this strategy is significant. You may think at this moment, 
how is this ever going to work? Like if you didn't know the rest and in this moment, how is being with Jesus, it all rests on that. The impact of Jesus on them so that they can go and represent Jesus and be messengers of the gospel. But we see in Acts chapter 4, verse 13, when the most elite people in all of Israel look at them and they say to them, what in the world is this? These untrained, uneducated, unskilled people from Galilee, but they were performing miracles. People's lives were being changed. And what did the elite religious people say as the only explanation they could come up with? Scripture says in Acts chapter 4, they took note that they had been with Jesus. You see, it doesn't really make sense to a lot of people to think about how does Jesus impact these men in a way that then changes the world. Some people struggle today to think about and detach their minds to like, why is it that we all gather to make much of Jesus? I want to read just for a second, uh, and you can follow along if you like. I'm going to read a, a, just a section out of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 18. The message of the cross is foolish to those who are headed for destruction. But we who are being saved know it is, ver- it is the very power of God. As the scriptures say, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and discard the intelligence of, uh, the, intelligence of the intelligent. So where does this leave the philosophers, the scholars, the world's brilliant debaters, okay? All the people that the shark tank people would have chosen to impact the world, who they would have thought were the superheroes to choose that Jesus doesn't build his team out of. He says, where does this leave that team, that group, the philosophers, scholars, the world's brilliant debaters? God has made the wisdom of the world look foolish, since God in his wisdom saw to it that the world would never know him through human wisdom, he has used the foolish preaching to save those who believe. It is foolish to the Jews who ask for signs from heaven. It is foolish to the Greeks who seek human wisdom. So when we preach that Christ was crucified, the Jews are offended. The Gentiles say, it's all nonsense. But to those called by God to salvation, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. This foolish plan of God is wiser than the wisest of human plans, and God's weakness is stronger than the greatest human strength. Remember, dear brothers and sisters, that few of you were wise in the world's eyes or powerful or wealthy when God called you. Instead, God chose things uh, things that the world considered foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise. And he chose things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. God chose things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all, and used them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. As a result, no one can ever boast in the presence of God. God has united you with Christ Jesus. For our benefit, God made him to be wisdom itself. Christ made us right with God. He made us pure and holy. He's freed us from sin. Therefore, as scripture says, if you want to boast, Boast only about the Lord. It didn't make any human sense. The people he chose made no human sense. The plan didn't really make any human sense. The difference in all of it is the power of God to salvation. It's all about 
Jesus. Jesus affected these men in such a profound way that the end of their lives, they chose death. This group of men um, who, again, makes, it makes no sense. When you think of the list of the men that we read through, you've got a tax collector and a zealot. You've got someone who's a mama's boy with some of the most strongest, uh, 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 passionate, aggressive, like on night number one is Matthew laying on the rock thinking, who's going to kill me first, right? The group of people that he put together in our minds is foolishness, but it's a part of God's plan and they're impacted by Jesus in such a profound way that it brings unity. It puts together a team that turns the world upside down, and it's because of the person of Jesus. He's the common denominator. He's the life changer, the agent of change in these men to where not only did they survive the first few hours of being together, but for three years, this band of brothers goes out, learns to live with Jesus and is then sent out with this message of Jesus in a way that ultimately leads to their plight. We met the people on his team. He prayed for his team. We know the plan and the purpose of the team, but that team had a plight. In the end, Peter, Scripture reveals, watched his wife be crucified. Extra biblical text reveals these truths. He pleaded to be crucified upside down because he didn't want to be crucified the same way as his Savior. James, brother of John, the only one that we see what happened in scripture, it reveals that he was executed by Herod Agrippa. And Matt, if you don't mind, would you put the, the, the screen back up of, of, that gives the list of all of them? Because as we work through this, you're, I want us to be confronted with the names, who they are. James executed by Herod Agrippa. The tradition is that when he was about to be beheaded, that the Roman soldier who had been um, treating him horribly uh, asked for him to forgive him, begging forgiveness at the feet of James because of his courage and his consistency in that soldier's life. He said, forgive me for the rough treatment and forgive me for my part in this execution. Tradition says that James lifted the man's head up, embraced him, kissed him, and said, Peace, my son, peace to you, and pardon of your faults. The soldier is then said to have been moved so much by James's compassion that he publicly confessed Christ in that moment and was beheaded along with the apostle. John, 
was exiled to the Isle of Patmos, which is where he wrote the books. Andrew, he led the wife, tradition says, of a provincial governor to Christ, and that when she refused to recant her faith, the governor had Andrew crucified on an X-shaped cross, which became the symbol of Andrew in the church lore. He's said to have hung on the cross for two days while hanging there preaching the gospel to whoever would go by. Philip, said to have been stoned to death in Asia Minor, but not before multitudes come to faith in Christ through his preaching. Bartholomew, some say that he was bound and thrown into the sea, and others would say that he was crucified. Matthew was burned at the stake. Thomas, who likely reached India, where some traditions say that he was killed with a spear. James, son of Alphaeus, preached in Persia, which would be modern Iran, was crucified. Thaddeus, the mama's boy, the soft-hearted one. He went to Syria, where he healed the king, and the king came to believe. But this resulted in so much turmoil that the unbelieving nephew of the king gathered a mob and they beat Thaddeus to death. Simon the Zealot. According to most traditions, he preached in Egypt, North Africa, and Persia. Where he was sawn in half like Isaiah. And Judas Iscariot, who took his own life. There was no backup plan. There was no backup crew. It's a pretty risky strategy, wouldn't you say, in human terms? But folks, today, these men are not the explanation for the advance of the gospel. They were available members of a team. They were empowered by God himself. And the gospel went over the whole world and continues to do so of a legacy to their faithfulness. But this band of people were misfits at best. We know from scripture the faults and the failures and the problems and the bickering and the fighting. And I mean, come on, the, the two sons of Zebedee are the ones who are like, hey, can, who's going to be the greatest? Can you put me at your right hand and left? And, and there's so many examples of just the, the blunders. Jesus himself said that they are slow learners, this group. This is the team Jesus chose to start the advance of the gospel with. But at the Great Commission, he called all of us. We're all a part of the team. And God chose to use those kinds of people because that's the only kind of people to use. There's no other people. So welcome to the team, God's team. It's grown a little bit from the deity's dozen to a few more, right? But today, folks, um, every time I, I uh, am faced with uh, what these men, as you follow along from the beginning, God, God calls them, follow me, now drop your nets and come. Like there's a, there is a, a giving up and a following, a like, part-time follower to like you're full-time and that's going to cost you something 
That's why it says, take up your cross and follow me. Um, today, maybe all we're called to do is to remember these men, to think of the plan that the Lord put together, which is a God plan with people who are just like us, ordinary, that God, through his power, does extraordinary things. To God be the glory. Great things he has done. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, I pray that as we go through and we look at the people that were a part of this group, that we realize we're just, we're just the same. And you call us just the same to sit in your presence, to spend time with you, to get to know you, the author and perfecter of our faith, to change to be more like you every day a little bit more and a little bit more. Lord, forgive us for our failures. Forgive us for giving into the flesh, for um, sometimes not being disciplined, in the way that we should be, for being selfish, uh, slow to follow your lead, to go in the direction you call us to go, um, to doubt you. Lord, forgive us for these things. Forgive us for being uh, bold to a point of hurting people when we should be loving. Lord, I, I see pieces of all these guys and, and my own struggles, my own bad choices. God, thank you for choosing them. Thank you for giving us today the uh, example that we all are a part of the team, that you love us just the same as you loved all of them. And we have today the opportunity to be intimate with you. Lord, I, I pray today that we would choose to spend time with you so that when we are sent out each day, when we go out everywhere that we go, that we would go in your likeness, displaying your image and the words we say, the things that we choose to do would bring you glory, but point people most, most, um, most perfectly to you. Um, God, thank you for this passage in Mark. I pray that we continue to be good disciple makers of the Great Commission. We ask all these things in Jesus' name.